There are two kinds of people, it seems, those who know exactly what they want to do. Other people have to have two, three, four jobs until they figure out what they want to do. It's not necessarily a clean line, but that doesn't mean that everything you're acquiring won't ultimately serve you. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Dawn Davis. She is the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, a Condé Nast publication and oversees Condé's food brands, including Epicurious and Basically. Before joining Bon Appetit, Dawn worked in publishing for 25 years. Most recently, she had founded and been the publisher of 37 Inc., an imprint of Simon & Schuster that focused on elevating underrepresented voices. She's also an avid at-home cook and an author. Her book, If You Can Stand the Heat, Tales from Chefs and Restaurateurs, profiled some of the most dynamic and prolific chefs of the 1990s. Dawn, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks for having me. Let's go into our lightning round to start us off before we jump into kind of the meat of our, our time together. Um, do you like how I used meat? Huh. See, already cooking. I yeah. do. I do. Okay, uh, I was wondering, right. I'm like, that's such an awkward thing to say. I've never no, heard I'm you say that. So but many I get cooking it. puns. I Thanks. get it. Thanks. I'm on fire. So Dodd, what was the very first job you ever had? The very first job I had was working at a bakery in what is now called The Grove. But when I worked there, it was called Farmer's Market. And it was a kind of Austrian bakery, so delicious. And it made me very popular at school because I often could take home some leftover pastry. What is a secret hobby and skill that you have? A former hobby that I have that not many people know about is I used to, I think I was an early adapter of rollerblades and I used to rollerblade all over the city. No way. Which perhaps was, you know, not the safest thing, but it sure was fun. I can say that. I'm just picturing someone rollerblading on like in the bike lanes now. And it's like, I I have such anxiety. What is your go-to weeknight dinner? I would say I consistently make pasta and I consistently make a roast chicken. Dawn, you are meant to be my best friend. (laughs) On Sunday, I made a super yummy roast chicken with cloves and five-star anise. So delicious. And put that in butter and put it over chicken with some yummy vegetables on the bottom. So yummy. And then yesterday, I made this delicious pasta from one of our test kitchen recipe developers, Shilpa. And it was salami and shrimp with lemon and lemon zest on pasta. So yummy. So I stick to those two things. That sounds amazing. It also leads me to another lightning round question. What do you feel is the most underrated herb? Like what is something that people should be using that they're not? That is, I did not know where you were going with that. I'm going to say sage because we often use it around the holidays, but I feel like I just started using it in this chicken recipe that Bon Appetit published in February. Um, Nana's 
chicken and rice stew. And honestly, it gave the dish a little secret something that I wasn't expecting. So I'm going to start using a lot more sage. Okay. Somebody says, Dawn, we will make you your dream kitchen. What is the one must have that you're like, this kitchen won't be perfect until it has blank? That is such a good question. So I find that I would love a good range, one that works for the home cook. Seriously, I'm freaking out. Like we are, I really just need to become friends with you. I totally agree. We can arrange that. We can arrange that. I get lots of dinner invites, Carly, and sometimes my friends can't do it. So maybe you can. Yeah, come I'm with your me. new plus one. That's great. Danielle's gonna have one. a baby soon. I'm gonna need a new plus one. That this is was great. such a pity invite. Carly. Danielle's gonna want to go out. <laughs> What's something you're binge watching? I love Shrill with A.D. Bryant. I think it's so smart. It just came to my attention. I think the acting is great and the writing is is fantastic. And I'm obsessed with inventing Anna. It's so diabolical, but also like hard to hard to look away from. Yes, that is a good way to describe it. I want to dive into how you grew up and how you thought about what you wanted to be, because I'm fascinated by your early career and some of the jumps that you made. So what was your family like? What did you think that you wanted to do? Let's start there. So I grew up in a very working class environment and I wasn't the first in my family to go to college. I had aunts and uncles who'd gone to college, but I certainly was the first to have some of the doors open and the opportunities available to me. I worked on Wall Street summer of my, I think, junior year. And then I get a job offer and, you know, your, your job out of college, you're making as much money as some people in your family who've been working for 40 years or for 30 years. And so when Wall Street came, it just seemed like particularly for, a, you know, black woman of a working class, it seemed like this door was opening to a different lifestyle where you weren't living paycheck to paycheck and a little kind of safety, quite frankly, and maybe not the most intellectually fitting with what I would ultimately really find stimulating, but it felt very safe, if you will, safe in terms of financial security. So there was the safe path, safer path, let's just say. Yes. And then there's the otherwise very lucrative industry of publishing. I say that very sarcastically. Yes. What do you think like was the moment when you're like, I'm going to take this path that might not make the most financial sense right away? So very early on, I would say I I had a two-year program at a firm called First Boston. And the great thing about that experience is there were probably 50 people my age right out of college also in this two-year program. And I could see how excited some of them were about the opportunities. And I could see that my excitement didn't really match theirs. And I worried that I had made a mistake very early on. It wasn't bringing me satisfaction. I wasn't excited um, when I went to work every day. And I just decided if I, I was 21, like if I couldn't make a change then because I was worried about money, I would never be able to make a change. And I would get locked into this pattern of working for the paycheck as opposed to working for something that I'm really excited about. And 
at the time, a guy named Ray McGuire, who would ultimately run for mayor, was more senior there and quite respected. And, you know, we kind of called him the godfather to our generation. And Ray gave me great advice. He said, you know, do what you love and success will follow. Success can't really follow if you don't absolutely love what you do. You know, I I published a guy named Chris Gardner, whose life was turned into the movie The Pursuit of Happiness. And, you know, his philosophy is there's no plan B, because if you have a plan B, you're not in the game that you really, really love. You should have a plan A and just give 150%. So I just decided I could leave. Now, of course, my mom thought, you're going to do what? (laughs) And not only did I go to publishing, but I went for a nonprofit. So I made even less money. I worked for a guy named Andre Schifrin who started the New Press. And it was tough, but you know, you eat lots of rice and beans and pasta and soup and save whatever little pennies you can. And you just kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other. At the time, did you know what you were passionate about? Because I think hearing that advice, I'm like, yeah, you know, I I totally get it. But especially being in your early 20s, getting that advice, you want to make the the jump. But I feel like a lot of the times the question that we get is, how do you know what you're really passionate about enough that you're going to stick with it and have that ability to be satisfied? So I mentor some young women and sometimes I say, look, there are two kinds of people, it seems, those who know exactly what they want to do. You know, they know they want to go into science. They know they want to go into broadcast. And then there are other people who have to have two, three, maybe even four jobs until they figure out what they want to do. It's not necessarily a clean line, but that doesn't mean that everything you're acquiring won't ultimately serve you. You know, even like this book that I published in 1999, it's serving me now in terms of connections to those chefs, connections to some of the struggles that restaurateurs are still dealing with. So I feel like you have to have faith that everything you're acquiring in terms of knowledge will ultimately pay off. As long as you're learning, are you learning from someone you're reporting to or is there someone in your firm you can look around and model yourself after? You have a reputation as a trailblazer in publishing. And I think it particularly stems from the fact that there was an imprint that you founded and ran that focused on marginalized voices. What was your pitch to get that off the ground? So actually, I was pitched running my own imprint. I had been the editorial director of an imprint called Amistad, which was devoted to books of the Black diaspora. And Someone came to me and said, you know, listen, after you run your own imprint, you can't go back to being an editorial director or an executive editor. I think you need to run your own imprint again. And so then I had some time to think about how I could make a difference. And the idea was to publish stories that don't always get the support, particularly when I founded it, which was in 2013. I think the times have changed now, but to really kind of fill a void and to do it with purpose and to do it as if these books deserve to be in the center of the conversation, which of course they did. So yeah, it was, it was fun. It was organic. And I think just a continuation of what I had been doing all along. What are you like as an editor? My job as a magazine editor is to work with this incredibly talented team that I have who are so passionate about food, who live and breathe food. And at a pitch meeting, we might get dozens of stories and to narrow them down into the kind of five or six tentpoles that are going to really hold up any issue in any month and to really 
make everyone feel heard and to keep people who are looking for recipes and people who want to know what's going on in the food world informed. And how do we harness all this great energy and then finalize it? As a book editor, I have a feeling that the author knows when they're making a mistake. They just need someone to tell them. My job was to be that voice in their head that says, you know, you made a wrong turn. Let's let's stay on track. Or I think, you know, this character needs to be developed more or this point needs to be developed more. For whatever reason you hesitated, let's get into it. Talk to us about the transition into the food world professionally. Yeah, that's another great question. You know, I wrote this book a while back and then I had children. So my relationship to food was trying to score a good reservation and trying to come up with inspiration for the table that would keep me entertained as a novice cook who didn't want to make the same thing over and over, who wanted to learn something different from time to time and also put meals on the table that most of my family on any given day would love. You know, I wanted three for three. I've got two teens and a husband. So I wanted a three for three, 98% of the time. And now I am running Epicurious and Bon Appetit, where we are publishing to the experienced cook, the novice. We're cooking for people who are looking for cuisine from around the world. And we're looking for people who want chicken breasts and pasta every night. And so really a diverse set of recipes in terms of accessibility and in terms of flavor profile. And to tell really interesting and inspiring stories around food. The approach is to be recipe forward, but to also tell stories that show the intersection between food and culture, food and the environment, food and equity, you know, food in the farmer's market, food first. So you went from an imprint that you really helped build from the ground up to two legacy brands. Yes. What was that transition like in terms of like being a part of creating something from scratch to, okay, and inheriting something that's already been cooked, how are you going to make it better? You know, it was a risk, but I also felt like I'm the audience. I am the home cook looking for inspiration. I have a great Rolodex of tell diverse stories and I have a passion for food. So in some ways, in some ways it's completely different. And on the other way, if I just say today, you're going to figure out how to tell a story about food. So I I try not to be overwhelmed, but just to try to look at it as you've got five big stories to tell in any edition in any month. And who are the best storytellers? How can we be really diverse in our storytelling? And while they are legacy brands, we're always also in search of new audiences. We're in search of diverse audiences. And, you know, that's kind of what I was hired to do. So I try not to be overwhelmed by the history and more focus on who's going to pick it up, who's going to log in tonight, and who's going to click on that story. That's what I try to focus on. You inherited a work environment that was in the midst of a bit of public turmoil. When you first came in, how did you approach the challenge of building a safe, inclusive work culture? So the people that stayed were committed to a diverse work culture. I again, had a reputation for publishing diverse voices. We brought in diverse recipe developers. We brought in a diverse team. And when you have that kind of team, the storytelling just naturally becomes diverse. I have a policy of listening. Also knowing that this work takes time. It's not something that you can instantly change. And working with people both above me and around me to message that this is going to take time and it's particularly going to take time to get it right. I have an open door policy where I listen. 
I remember early on, one of the columns I started is now called All on the Table. And it's where we have literary writers write about a moment, an emotional moment that happened over the proverbial dinner table. And I remember the team coming to me and, and, you know, I'm proud that they felt comfortable that they could come to me and say, we don't like the title for this reason. Here are the connotations for this community or that community. And so just really being open-minded, not autocratic, but, you know, also having a firm point of view. I think uh, an important point about what you said was around timing and for this work to be done and, and done well, it, d- it does take time. With that, how did you show employees that they would be heard? So I literally put hours on the calendar that they could always come and see me. I literally came into the office for those who felt like they could come in and felt like they could do so safely so that they could get to know me and so that I could get to know them. I have editorial meetings where everyone is invited. There's no hierarchy. We literally go in the order of who's on the Zoom screen in what order and not how long have you been here. It's ongoing and inevitably, you know, mistakes will be made. But I think if people know that I'm always working on this open environment where we can try to make things better. I think that that can go a long way. What is your vision for, you know, the future of, of these brands? Like, what do you, what do you want to see happen to, to Bon Appetit and to Epicurious? So I want it to be a place where people come for the recipes, inspiration to put for what to put on the table. But also I think that there is a time now where we can have some inspiring and maybe thought-provoking articles as well in a Bon Appetit. We had in our restaurant issue and I got an amazing response for people saying, it's about time someone covered this. Thank you for covering it. It was about parenting. You know, how do the hospitality industry where so much of it takes place at night, how do they deal with parenting? And do we as diners even think about it when we're enjoying ourselves? In our May issue, which is our sustainability issue, we are talking about sushi. Everyone wants to be sustainable, but when you're flying fish halfway around the world, what does that really mean? And are we practicing what we preach? So I feel like we will always be known for where to go for recipes, but I think we can also be a place for fun and interesting articles as well as thought-provoking articles because the pandemic taught us that food relates to everything, equity, culture, the environment, hospitality, love, you know, it, it just is everything. So why can't we have articles from time to time that also play into that? As you said before, especially coming out of a pandemic, we've seen food, it just touches everything. One of the things that I think we see it touch day to day is social platforms. How have you guys been thinking about that? So we have started a real robust Reels program, which we're excited about. And on April 6th, we're going to start our TikTok platform on both Epicurious and Bon Appetit. And we're really excited about that. So we'll talk about everything from equipment, like, you know, what's the right whisk size to use for this, that, or the other. But we'll also talk about trends on TikTok and what our authorities in the test kitchen think about it. It'll just be really fun and playful, but also I think a place where the curious can get some education around food. I want to go to a question that we got from a listener. Sure. Tiffany wants to know, how have you dealt with pushback or no's in your career? So I remember the first no I got and, you know, you get really emotional about it. And some advice that I got was leave emotion out of it. Just make it about dollars and cents. So if you feel that you are deserving of this or it's time to initiate this, make an economic case for why it's going to work and why it's important. And so, you know, 
replacing emotion with kind of a more rational approach. There's a time to be emotional because that can be energizing. You talk to your girlfriends, you make a plan, but then kind of bring it back to dollars and cents. So I have two questions. First question, who else should we have on the show? So many women I admire, but I was thinking about Shonda Rhimes, who is behind Inventing Anna, my latest obsession. We love Shonda. We we are big fans. <laughs> big fans, right. And also she keeps leading different teams to write all of these really successful shows. Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, Bridgerton, Now This. And so she keeps successfully leading different teams. She went from ABC to Netflix. I think she's really an interesting person to talk to about leadership and vision. Couldn't agree more. And then my last question, how often do you get to go to the test kitchen? Well. I have to say, because of COVID, you know, they only really came back Mm. in the last few months. Only so many people could be in the kitchen at the same time. I could go every day. I get really upset when my team comes down with treats and they don't bring me any. Yeah, uh, that seems like a fireable offense to me, honestly. Yeah, well, it's definitely like I make them feel slightly guilty. And also, you never know what they're cooking. We work so far in advance. So in theory, what you're saying is you could be like, just sitting at your desk and smelling Christmas all of a sudden 100%. baking in the test kitchen. 100%. Oh my gosh. Okay. I've got to come visit you. Or, you know, I could go up because I can hear that there's this delicious pasta dish being tested and someone else happens to be making cookies, which is what happened last week. Oh, we have some delicious cookies coming up. Don, thank you so much. What a treat to have you and, and really excited by what you're doing. Thank you guys. That was really fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with The Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday.